Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast. This is episode five, part two of Meltdowns, Shutdowns, and Self-Harming Behaviors. We had so much to say about meltdowns, shutdowns, and self-harming behavior that we decided to split this episode into two parts. So let's begin with the second part of this episode where Nicole shares her personal experiences with meltdown as an adult. So I guess one, you know, this brings up another question, you know, as you have transitioned from child to adulthood, um, you still have meltdowns. I do. And I wanted to talk about like the specific meltdowns that I had in adulthood. And and one of the advantages I think of having meltdowns as an adult is that you're you're better able to talk about what the experience is like and you're able to identify the triggers. It's really hard to do that when you're a kid. Oh, for sure. So one of the examples was that I was stuck in a seven-day meltdown mode when I was applying for teaching positions while student teaching. At the time, I was 27 years old, I want to say. So, I was, so I'm in my late 20s. I had been in college for nine years. Um, I had gotten a bachelor's degree in art school, and then I did a year of graduate school, dropped out of grad school, then went back to college to get my teaching license. It's a long time to be in college. Right. And I guess, oh, and then the other piece of it too was I did three student teaching placements. I I have a background mm. in art, so if you have a K through 12 teaching license, you need to do two different placements. I ended up doing three because I also got a Waldorf teaching license. Mm-hmm. And so once I was done with all my um teaching uh teaching placements, if you will, I was doing my Waldorf teaching placement uh while I was applying for teaching positions. This was around like February, March. And in my mind, I thought I'm going to apply for jobs after I'm done with my student teaching. I have time. Usually the the hot period of applying for jobs is like March, April. Right, and right. my student teaching ended like mid-March. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm in control. I'm just going to finish my student teaching and then I'll mm-hmm. hit the ground running applying for jobs. I got pressured so hard by my mentor teacher and my parents to start applying in February because yeah so because that's kind of when they start opening it up and Mm -hmm. it was really hard for me emotionally because I didn't there were a lot of reasons why I didn't feel ready one of them being I wasn't done so Mm -hmm. even though like from a public school teaching perspective I had everything I needed to apply for my jobs um I I felt anxious about applying for jobs with an incomplete portfolio and at the time so I had I had an elementary placement, a high school placement, the Waldorf placement was mainly middle school age and I I guess I sort of felt like if I want to take a middle school position, I don't want to apply unless I have a middle school portfolio. So that was one of the obstacles. But the other part of it, too, was that between student teaching, you know, your grading, your lesson planning, you're getting all of your practicum needs met for your college program, you're meeting with people, you come home and you're applying for jobs. I got no downtime and I needed that downtime for my nervous system to recoup. And I went through the process and I, I actually got a lot of interviews. I had like 13, I applied for 13 positions and had, I think, at least two or three interviews. And, you know, I I struggled. Um, mm-hmm. I struggled with the lack of predictability of mm-hmm. I'm putting in all this work. Is it going to lead to a job? Uh, I, I had an attachment to, like, what type of job I wanted. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I think More regardless stuff, right? of. Well, yeah. And I think whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse, like interviews are stressful. 100%. So it it was just like, it was too much happening at the same time. And really what triggered the meltdown was that I got turned down for a job that I thought I was going to get in a, in a school with a demographic that I really wanted. And after that, 
I was stuck in a meltdown mode for seven days. And I couldn't get out of the meltdown mode. And I tried all sorts of things, ranging from yoga and meditation to exercising to making art to journaling. I even tried, you know, self-harming. That didn't work either. And and right. I can't even begin to tell you, as somebody who practices mindfulness, how disempowering it was to not have control of getting out of my own distress. And my husband didn't know what to do either. Um, we were dating at the time and he's seeing me in the state. It was like the first time he'd ever seen me in a meltdown, which that alone is super vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So, so I didn't know what to do. I ended up calling a friend who, whose husband is a, uh, he at the time was a PhD candidate in counseling. And I'm like, I need help. I'm scared. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't understand mm -hmm. why this is happening especially considering that I felt mentally okay and ready to transition. But what my friend very profoundly concluded was that I was having withdrawal symptoms from the routine of being in school. Interesting. I It blew my mind and it totally made sense. So mm. he basically said, you know, you've been in school as a student, living the life of a student from six years old to 27. Mm. That's mm. a long, that's 20 years of your life in this particular routine. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, when you have this, uh, this routine of autism therapy as well, like sometimes autism therapy has similarities with like the structure and routine of of school in terms of like, do a task and here's what's expected of you and here's how you grow. Mm -hmm. And so that was my life. And even though it was healthy and right for me to then transition to being a working professional, mm -hmm. my body was not ready for that. And that adjustment was so jarring mm -hmm. that it couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of withdrawal symptom really, uh, I guess, resonated with me because it, it did feel like when you are taken away from that routine, you crave it. Mm. And, and that mm -hmm. routine makes you feel biologically stable. Mm -hmm. No, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So you I, were, that was yeah. a huge transition. It was just one big transition that you didn't, did not anticipate. Uh, and, and again, like, it it caught me off guard because up to that point I had managed my autism so well right. that it it was totally overwhelming and scary mm -hmm. to be in a position of not having control. And it goes back to what I said earlier about, you know, life throws you curveballs and you don't know how you're gonna handle it. Right. You right. know, all of your copies. None of your coping skills work. Well, guess what? Now you're going to have to have new coping skills. Yeah. So, so that kind of, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Ask... So, um, yeah, there were a couple of other instances. Um, and I think to, I think a lot of my meltdowns occurred because of things that I think would overwhelm and burn out anybody. So another sure. meltdown I remember having uh, was during my second year of teaching. COVID was mm -hmm. in the throes. We had parent-teacher conferences coming up. I had never done parent-teacher conferences before. The day of the parent-teacher conferences, our apartment flooded. Mm. And so I had a huge meltdown from that. Yeah. Another, um, add and, another twist to that. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, I actually, I just ended up having to skip parent-teacher conferences because I, right. and, and not that I told my employer I was having a meltdown. I just basically said, hey, my apartment flooded and I can't. I can't do this. But part of the meltdown was like, as a new teacher, you feel like there's so much stakes of like, I cannot miss this, but right. yet there's this obstacle and what do I do? And I have to take care of this urgent thing now. So it's like, yeah, I mean, if you're, if your house or your apartment floods, like anybody would hit their breaking point. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then another, but it's something that you didn't anticipate. No. And that, you know, that, that, 
is what we hate as autistic people. We hate unpredictability. Of course you do. Um, yeah, my meltdowns also often occurred after points of like overstimulation, exhaustion, or burnout. Mm -hmm. um, one other really funny story I'll I'll share about a meltdown is that um, I I lesson plan during the summer mm -hmm. because I just don't want to deal with it during the school year. So. I was in like a really hyper fixated mode of like trying to get my lesson planning done. And in the meantime, I was doing a, a special education summer camp counseling job. And there was one day where I don't know if it was the exhaustion of lesson planning or just the agitation of being pulled away from lesson planning in order to go do work. But like mm -hmm. I could just sense that something was off and I had to go meet up with my special ed buddy who did not have autism. Um, but she, you know, she had similar needs like mm -hmm. I did. And so um, I was just so sensory defensive. Like I couldn't have music on going to the event. And because I couldn't play music, it upset my buddy who was like mm -hmm. at the time 15 years old. Mm -hmm. She got upset because she needs music to regulate. So mm -hmm. I'm like, crap, what am I going to do? Because what all the choices I'm making to not have a meltdown are now affecting this other person who could then have a meltdown. Great. What puts this whole thing together in this like painfully ironic way, we go to a bowling alley for our group activity, which mm. I'm thinking, I have no idea why you take autistic people to yeah. a bowling alley because it is the most sensory overstimulating yeah, exactly. place ever. So let's go to a fireworks show. Let's do something. Oh my wild. God. Let's totally. go to Vegas. So, let's take a bunch of autistic kids to Vegas. I know. And so not only am I getting triggered by like the sensory environment, but then there are kids who are having meltdowns. I finally was like, I, I felt the meltdown coming and I just like ran outside and I just broke down. And there was a, a a supervisor who saw me and I just said, I got to go home. Like, mm -hmm. I don't even know if I can drive. Like, that's how bad it was. And I was self-harming. Wow. It was yeah. the first public meltdown I'd ever had. And luckily, it was around people who understood why, you know, they knew I had autism. They understood why the meltdown was occurring. They did a really great job problem solving. Like, all right, we're going to get coverage for you. But yeah, I think that I guess I share that story because it's like it's just so difficult to have those sensory challenges and then be with somebody who also has those sensory challenges. So right. you think about like people with autism and special education, like what if you're having a bad sensory day and you're working with somebody who also has a bad sensory day? Like both of you are going to have a meltdown. There you go. Yeah, oh, I know. God. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, one thing I, you talked about um, your parents and how they looked at it, um, and you talked about your husband and how he looked at it. How does he look at it now? Um, I think that having a meltdown in front of him was really vulnerable. I think that with disclosure, like for me, it's like I'm really open about my autism. Right. But I'm not open about the struggles with my autism. And mm -hmm. I think a, a big part of that comes from growing up in a time where curing autism was a really big push. So anytime you have openly autistic struggles, you just go to the worst case scenario of people are going to leave me. People are going to be angry with me. They're, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the first time he saw it, I cried because mm -hmm. I was scared he was going to leave me. No, oh, wow. He didn't. Okay. Um, he actually, I Fortunately. think. Oh, yeah. Well, and the, and I feel very lucky because I, and for context, my husband is not autistic, but he's not neurotypical. Right, right. He's, he, he, he has ADHD. So it's a different type of neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. He, I guess, he's just very patient, understanding, and sympathetic. Perfect. And I think that one of the reasons that he, well, few reasons why I think he can tolerate it is one, they don't happen often. Two, I'm not putting him in danger. I'm not putting our apartment in danger. Mm -hmm. Not to say that it's, oh, best case scenario, I'm hurting myself. Right, right. 
but it's not like my meltdowns violate his boundaries. Mm. Um, really what's hard is, is sometimes he doesn't know how to get me out of it, but because they happen so rarely, he just has a lot of trust, like, okay, we're going to get through this and, right, right. you know, we'll get through it and we'll find a solution if you can't. Um, yeah, as for awesome. my parents, <laughs> I, I guess it's tricky because, you know, being an adult who doesn't live with them, they, they don't, it's not like they have a responsibility to deal with it. I know that my mom got frustrated with constantly dealing with meltdowns and I don't fault her for it. I think that that is absolutely human of her. I think that because my mom was way more hands-on and involved with the autism journey, as much as she got frustrated with it, she also got a lot of tips and tricks and mm. talked to a lot of people to say, okay, well, here's why Nicole's having a meltdown and here's how we deal with it. My dad, on the other hand, was not really involved in the autism journey. So a lot of the problems that I had with my dad is, he would have, so A, he thought I was cured of autism. Mm. So he was shocked when I would struggle as an adult. Mm. And I can't tell you how many times I've had meltdowns as like a teenager or a young adult. And he'd be like, you know, people your age don't have tantrums. And it's like, well, I'm not most people. Right, so right. I think... I think like it's taken a lot of me explaining that mm -hmm. I am still autistic. I still mm -hmm. struggle. Here's mm -hmm. what you can do if I'm struggling in front of you. And that's helped. Um, but at the same time, I think part of it too, and we're going to go into this a bit more when we talk about um, autism and low frustration tolerance. Mm -hmm. They don't have as much patience as my husband does. Okay. And so I, I think patience is a very, very big part of how you handle a person mm. who has a meltdown. And to be fair, patience is not universal. Like mm -hmm. sometimes you get burned out with the meltdowns and sometimes you get burned out from your own life issues separate from that person having the meltdowns. So mm. I get it. At the same time, it's like Temperament plays a really big role, and and my parents just have a more impatient temperament when it comes to mental health distress. And that's not a, a judgment of who they are as parents. It's just taken me a while as an adult for me to recognize like what their threshold is. Right, right. That's a good point. Okay, yeah. So if we're talking about you know ways to help, and and you know as a parent looking at my own child. Um, one thing I've learned is that to give him space and time to recover. And I know, and I knew over time that as he had meltdowns, um, that he needed significant time to emotionally recover from that. So having, having that, uh, the other thing we tried to do as a parent, and I don't know that I was always successful in this is that after the meltdown was over, I would try to walk through the reasons behind them with him. Right. So just like, okay, let's figure out what those triggers were. Um, when it was over, because there was absolutely no reasoning with my child when he was in the middle of a meltdown. There was, it was just not going to happen. You know, yeah. I tried yeah. in the beginning and nope, not receptive to this. That's cool. Um, have a, a safe place for him. You know, let him cry, let him you know, throw pillows, let him do something, whatever is going to get that aggression out. Usually, again, there was crying and, and blah, blah, blah. And then there was like remorse. Right. Lots of remorse and then big hugs, big hugs, tears flowing, tears flowing. And then, you know, still we need some time to recover. And then once that's done, then we would try. I would try to say, OK, do you remember when this happened? What what do you think set you off to, to try to get him to identify triggers on his own? Right. Mm -hmm. And to give us basically a heads up or or other people a heads up of, OK, I'm feeling that this is not working for me and I need something I need something to to help me get through this. Yeah, and that okay. leads me to I want to talk about what it's like to experience a meltdown firsthand mm -hmm. perspective. It is a very primal expression of the body. So when I say primal, I mean like there's this reptilian part of your brain that turns on and uh I don't know, when I was a kid I used to call it like going animalistic or going beast mode. Mm -hmm. Or if you watch anime like Sometimes when 
a main character watches a person die and there's this rage, like they transform into this whole different type of primal beast. And that feeling is really similar. You're not you. And what I mean by that is the rational cognitive part of you is gone. The part of you that would never hurt a fly is gone. Mm -hmm. The rational connection to what your body is feeling or doing is completely disconnected. And even if there is some rational part of you that knows that you don't want to throw objects or harm your harms your or harm yourself, that part of you feels very small and powerless during a meltdown. So I remember when I was in my seven day meltdown streak, like I remember my husband like rubbing my back and and saying like, it's okay, everything's gonna be okay. And I remember thinking like, wow, what he's doing is very kind. But in that meltdown mode, like I couldn't talk. Mm. I I couldn't stop crying. I wasn't like aggressive. I wasn't hitting him. I wasn't walking around. But mm -hmm. I remember how heartbroken I was that I couldn't reciprocate mm. his his desire to soothe me. Mm -hmm. And And again, I was 27 and very aware of what was happening in my mind and my body during the meltdown. And it, it was very, I felt a tremendous amount of remorse that I had no control, that, mm. that uh, there was a barrier for me being able to talk. There was a barrier of me being able to like reciprocate loving touch or to be able to say what you're doing is working. So, um, I, I think I want to share that to really emphasize how powerless we feel when we have a meltdown. And and again, like as somebody who has a lot of mindfulness coping tools, it sucks when none of those things work. And when mm -hmm. you're in that meltdown, nothing's getting you out of it. Nothing. Yeah, that, um, that's good to know for, you know, the parent and significant other and teacher point of view. Oh, definitely. And I think the other thing, too, about the the guilt and shame of having a meltdown, mm. it's like if you throw up or if you soil yourself in public, like there's this part of you that knows what you're doing is not socially appropriate, and yet you can't prevent it from happening. You know, mm. so so when I think back to all these times that I've had meltdowns, it really was like throwing up, like you're delaying the inevitable. It's right. going to happen. And so I think that's that's another part of the shame. Like if I think back to the meltdown I had in my special needs job, like I couldn't find a, a private space to have a meltdown. It was going to be in public and I wasn't going to make it through the day to suppress that meltdown so that I could have it in a private space. Right. It, it it's your body's response of saying, I'm done. I can't take this. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, you feel a huge amount of shame when it happens because if you had control, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it at all, much less do it publicly. Yeah, um, and that, that goes into how shame plays a role in all of these things, self-harming, meltdowns, and tantrums. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's, really all I have to say about that. But but I think that part of what's helpful for parents is talk to other autistic adults and say, what is it like to have a meltdown? What is your biological process? What's your experience? What's your feeling? Because I think a lot of the the frustrations that neurotypical adults have is they'll be like, well, the kid's choosing this. Mm -hmm. They're not choosing it. Um, mm -hmm. it, it much like you don't choose a panic attack, much like right. Uh, That's true. You know, That's I I mean to, think of it. to to go to really big extremes. Like there are some people who have suicidal thoughts, and they don't choose those thoughts. You know, there right. are some people that do, but I think that there are some people who are in so much distress that they just go to that place in a knee jerk way. And I think meltdowns are similar. It's like when your body reaches that place of just that extreme pain and that extreme distress, like your body's going to do what it needs to do. Right. All right. So now we should talk about how do we handle these, these things, right? And I, I'm going to start off with how should we 
um, handle self-harm, right? And if we, if we have this understanding that self-harm doesn't occur during a shutdown or meltdown, but it could be done to prevent a meltdown and a release of pent-up stress, that's something that we can have an understanding about. Another thing we can have an understanding about is that self-harm could lead up to a meltdown, um, that we find a way to communicate that doesn't need, that, that um, being met is, whatever that need is, is not being met is causing that self-harm. In other words, do we have an understanding of what our body is telling us or what our mind is telling us or what our needs are that, not, that is not being met? And how, can we communicate that to other people? Or can we journal that um, and talk to a therapist about uh, some of these things? Um, another thing to think about is self-harm being normalized as a way to deal with mental health distress, or it could be seen, you know, oddly enough as a teacher, is it a cool thing to do among peers, which I can testify to because, uh, neurotypical kids self-harm, um, with the, the scraping and scratching kind of thing. Um, and this might be amplified on social media, that kind of thing. So looking out for those things, um, looking can for I, people can who can empathize. You. Absolutely. Real quick. So I actually was talking to a woman whose daughter, young adult daughter, was on, recently diagnosed with autism, and the daughter had a lot of um, struggles with suicidal attempts and suicidal thoughts. And one of the things that she discovered is one of the ways the daughter would cope with her mental health distress is she would go on TikTok, and she would find all of these TikTok accounts that would talk about like here's how you self-harm and, and wow. not, uh, have your, your mom know. Um, and so Fantastic. what, what would happen is she would self-harm with reinforcement of social media. And the mom was so horrified yeah, no learning that. And she was like, I had to take her phone away because I, I don't, trust that the internet is going to be a helpful resource for managing our mental health. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely not. No, that's a that's a really good thing to think about as a parent. Um, there's only so much that we can control for our children and being aware of some of those other things and activities that they might be experiencing may not be helping them um, yeah. in some of these instances. It just like makes me sick that there are people who like put content out on social media that are like, here's how you self-harm, or right. here, here are some strategies and ideas for, I don't know, how to commit suicide. Right. And that, and it, that just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, I, it's, I don't know. And I guess it, I guess as somebody who maybe isn't going down that rabbit hole myself and, and can't relate to that, I, mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I, I just feel like, wouldn't you want content on the internet that motivates people or even just like has a point of empathy from maybe somebody who is right. living a healthier life? Like, I don't know. Well, I there just, is that stuff out there, uh, but you know, is, is our, our kids actually looking at those things versus the other things? Yeah. And right? we don't and have that, control over that. Exactly. And that, and that goes to, you know, understanding that if you're going to engage in this or you have a tendency to engage in this, to um, have some healthier choices that can have that physiological impact that you're looking for, such as exercising, perhaps, or singing or making art, you know, doing something kinesthetic, going outside, you know, basically taking your mind off of whatever you're happening to be going through. For example, um, my child in middle school were these... Um, tendencies happened a lot. It was like, okay, let's take a break during class. This is written into his IEP that he would go to the teacher. It's like, I need to take a break. It's, and the understanding was, okay, you're going to go outside, you're going to take a, you know, get a drink, or you're going to sit right outside of the classroom where I can check on you. Right. And that was written into the IEP. So he was, we were being able to be more aware of what these, um, his needs were and, um, advocating for those. And then using mindfulness and grounding exercises to slow down the impulse to self-harm or recognizing the thoughts that trigger the desire to self-harm in the first place. Now, Nicole, you're going to talk about um, autistic shutdowns and meltdowns and how those sh should be handled. I could say, okay, well, you can either self-harm or you can do this. Which one is going to show kindness to your body? Ooh, I like that And idea. having that, yeah, so having that like mindful self-compassion towards your body as a as a living creature that you love and support can be a really great way to kind of 
at least take that pause. It's not going to, I don't think it always prevents the self-harming thoughts or mm -hmm. impulses, but it at least teaches you to pause and right. say, if I love my body, is this the best choice that I want to make for I it? I love that idea. Love it. Yeah. Um, all right. So how should autistic shutdowns be handled? Uh, neurotypical caregivers, my advice would be give the person with autism lots of space to be in the shutdown and recover from it. Support them to reduce triggers. Don't touch or talk to a person during a shutdown or else it will cause a meltdown. For autistic adults, my advice would be sleep, eat and hydrate, practice boundary setting, learn about the triggers and the, and the personal warning signs that a shutdown is coming, get accommodations at school and work that would prevent the triggers contributing towards a shutdown, you know, have a sensory, sensory deprivation day. Mm -hmm. That can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. For meltdowns, for neurotypical caregivers, my advice would be take action to protect the safety of the autistic person, yourself, and the people around you. Mm -hmm. So that would be doing a room clear, ex escorting to that, that person to a safe space. Maintain a calm tone and demeanor, offer physical support without restraint, such as hugs and squeezes for proprioceptive regulation, mm. give space, don't talk or touch the person without permission, support them to reduce triggers, don't shame them about acting childish or out of control. Um, another thing, oh, I, I had a thought, but, oh yeah, I'm going to talk about it later. So. Okay. I'm going to keep going. Um, for the autistic adults, understanding and avoiding meltdowns, uh, a meltdown trigger, learning about co-regulation with a parent, friend, roommate, spouse, other people that are support sources, look into a, a sensory tools to help regulate yourself during a meltdown. My best advice would be to buy the touch points vibrating wristbands. We'll put the the link to that in our show notes. Absolutely. The whole point of it is that it creates vibrations on your wrist that teach your body to kind of like slowly titrate out of a meltdown titrating meaning like stepping out of that mm. state mm -hmm. um building a mental health first aid kit having grounding techniques during the meltdown sleep take a sick day have compassion for yourself when you do have a meltdown another thing i'll say is if you're a working professional and you think you're about to have a meltdown, don't even go to work. Mm. Take a take a sick day. Yeah. Especially as a teacher, you don't want to have a meltdown in front of your students because not. you don't want to give anybody the impression that you're not a safe person to be around. Or you're not in control. And the other, there's that too. And then the other thing is like, if you are on the edge of a meltdown and a school shooting happens and you need to keep kids safe, you don't want to be on that edge where like you are not in a physical or emotional state to keep kids safe. Right. And the same thing goes if there's like a medical crisis, like if a kid has an allergic reaction to something and mm -hmm. you got to intervene, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. One more thing I'll add is, is talking about the role of shame in self-harming meltdowns and tantrums. Mm -hmm. Caregivers can create shame by telling people with autism that they're out of control mm. or acting immature, mm -hmm. especially if there aren't, if they're at an age where it's developmentally inappropriate to have a meltdown. I talked about it with my experience, like adults shouldn't have meltdowns or breakdowns. Um, the tone of shame can impact the shame autistic adults have of having an autistic behavior that is seen as socially inappropriate, especially when it comes to meltdowns and shutdowns. There's also shame around the loss of control and whatever caregivers say that can be shaming creates an internal dialogue of shame, which then creates a shame spiral, right. which then perpetuates a meltdown. So it's really, really important that caregivers evaluate their implicit bias when it comes to meltdowns mm. and how they're, they're communicating because you don't want to you don't want to create that internalized shame language, which really internalized shame language is essentially internalized ableism. Okay. And that goes into um, advice. What advice 
can we give people in these instances? So if, if you had, if I had to give advice to a student that had a meltdown or shutdown, or you would know that this was going to happen, um, again, it's, and we've talked about this a lot, um, having an understanding that this could happen in one of your students um, is huge. Um, so you as a teacher should be an advocate. So in that IEP meeting and that 504 meeting, um, teachers need to know. And so as we have this understanding that this child may experience these things, um, I think the best thing that we could do is in communication with their caseworker um, or their special ed coordinators is learn what those triggers might be so we can diffuse those, so we can head those off, uh, but also to give them a safe space, right? A place to wind down, recover, and support them um, with a counselor, para, or special ed coordinator. Um, if there's other um, tools. Oh, the other thing is, you know, if this if the kid has to take or the student has to take um, a day off or two, we need to be understanding that that has occurred and give the student a chance to get caught back up and not add to the stress that, oh, I missed the test. And now, you know, that's part of the shaming thing. You just, you know, took this day off to because a test, you know, happened yesterday and I'm not going to give you a chance to uh, to take it more, make it up or no, we have to have this understanding that Give the, give the student time to recover after recovery, come back and get caught up um, with, this, with the things that they missed inside of the classroom, right? So setting up, the, the big thing is setting up the game plan ahead, in, ahead of time. So the teachers, special ed coordinators, and the students know and can game plan as much as they can um, about what can be successful in the classroom. All right, Nicole, how about you? What advice do you have? Um, all right. So I don't have advice. Um, I just have important perspectives to consider just again from being an autistic adult. So when an, uh, when a student has a meltdown, the teacher does a room clear and evacuates all of the other students in the classroom, which is the right thing to do. The one thing that I'm always thinking about relating to a room clear is how the student with autism feels when mm -hmm. they're having a meltdown mm -hmm. and they're left alone in a classroom. Now, again, not that they're left alone in the classroom for a long time, but I think about like when I'm in a meltdown, I don't want to be left alone. Right. I don't want, I don't want to feel abandoned or alienated. I want somebody to be nearby to love and support me. And so I feel like a room clear could make the autistic person feel abandoned, alienated, or shamed for having a meltdown. And I say this because I don't, I, it's not like I'm saying it to critique that room clears are bad and they make autistic kids feel ashamed. I guess I just always felt torn. Like sometimes I feel like a room clear is about like the other kids. What do you do? What are you doing to care for the kid who's having the meltdown? Mm -hmm. And if there is that shame or feeling of abandonment, does that make the meltdown worse? Right. So, you know, and again, I I, I don't think that feeling lasts a long time because usually the teacher will go grab somebody who is qualified to handle, you know, a right. meltdown. I guess what I'm hoping is that educators can have a little more sympathy for what it feels like to be autistic in that place of distress. The other thing is, I think teachers have a really difficult time recognizing what a shutdown is. They might see it as non-compliance. Right. You know, I I can speak as a teacher, like non-compliance is very annoying. Mm -hmm. and And students will choose not to respond as a way to establish a sense of power. And we are like, hey, don't do that. So I, I, I guess I could see teachers pushing and they might not, re not recognize that what they're doing is they're having a shutdown. And I, my advice would be look at it as if the student is having a migraine, a stomach bug, or a panic attack. Mm. They are not physically capable of engaging and forcing them to do so will cause physical, mental, and emotional strain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. What advice do you? Oh, I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I think I, this transition is fine. But you know, it's it's just. Um, do you have as a teacher? What supports do you have as in, as in terms of other adults that can help you in this situation? Right, a room clear is really traumatic. Um, if it's safe, 
for the child to be escorted out with a caregiver or a special ed coordinator, I would prefer that over a room clear because it's just more traumatic, I think, for the autistic child. Um, that's just yeah. my two cents on that. Well, and it's also traumatic for the neurotypical kids. Oh, no, I mean, I mean, even like putting aside meltdowns, like I remember I had two students, two boys, like they were about to have a physical altercation with mm -hmm. each other. And I had to get in between the two of them. And I was like, you can't do this. Yeah. And I was about ready to kick them out of my classroom. Right. And and even though they settled down, like it totally disrupted the whole classroom environment. You think? And, well, and we yeah. had to we had to take like a, a a brain break because I had students who were so rattled by what had happened. Oh, that wow. They needed to. And these are not some of them were neurodiverse and some of them weren't. But. Mm -hmm. They were just so rattled by what they saw that they they needed a pause. Right. Like they couldn't work on their art projects. So that makes sense. Yeah. I, I I think it's I think it's traumatic for everybody. I mean, even if you handle it the best way possible, it's still it's still rattling yeah. for everyone and including the teacher. Definitely. And then that transitions to um, you know, we, we talk about students a lot because we're former teachers, but this also really goes to uh, the workplace as well. So, you know, if you're if you're on the spectrum, right, and, you know, odds are you're going to experience a meltdown or a shutdown, what do you do? And I guess, you know, my my first thought is a disclose that you have autism. I mean, that's that's part of the and we'll have a whole show on this on disclosure pros and cons, but the pro on this is that you are advocating for yourself. Number 1, number 2, um, the, that the employer has to have reasonable accommodations. If you bring up something that, hey, this is um, something that I need and it's reasonable because this, that, and the other thing, then they have to provide whatever that is. And so in this case, it might be that safe space, right? Or a room or the lunchroom or break room or whatever it happens to be where you can um, recover, that you can be alone, that you can collect your thoughts. And... Um, Nicole, you brought this up too. Take a take a mental health day. Nothing wrong with that. How about you, Nicole? Yeah. So the sticky point about disclosure is like there's already the hurdle of like telling somebody that you have autism. And right. then after that, it's like, what do you share about your autism? Right, and right, right. I don't know if it I don't know if I would necessarily share like that I have a propensity for meltdowns. And mm. I say this as somebody who did during my first year of teaching, mm -hmm. um, and not that I experienced consequences. In fact, the instructional coach at the school we both worked at like intercepted that communication and was like, maybe don't share that with your principal. Interesting. So again, this I, goes I into a that, later podcast that we're gonna talk about for sure. Yeah, but. yeah, definitely. So. I think that you as the autistic adult know that that's, that's part of your biology. Most employers are not going to know, or, or if they do, they, they associate it with like kids and they're not going to have like good opinions of you if they know, or if they, they see it happening. So I guess the first thing I would say is if you're going to disclose for the sake of accommodations, get accommodations to prevent a meltdown. Don't disclose that you have meltdowns. Mm. You know, you might say I, I experience sensory overwhelm. And mm -hmm. if I'm really hitting a breaking point, I might need a private room. You don't need to tell anybody like I have a meltdown. And especially don't say that in education because administrators do not want to hear anything that that could create a liability issue with students, mm. especially when it comes to safety. Yeah, good. Point. So even though like for me, it's like I know that I'm not going to like hit a student if I have a meltdown. Right, right. Well, the administrator's not going to know that. So they may let you go just to completely avoid mm. that kind of thing happening. So my advice would be know your body's limitations before going into the job so you can request accommodations that prevent burnout. Mm -hmm. You can't always know what those limitations are until you start work. So it's it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of knowing in the beginning and then 
as you go through your workday and you experience triggers, then you revisit, you know, a meeting with your evaluator and say, uh, I need this as well. And, you know, part of it is also being young. Like, I feel like I understand my body more at 31 than I ever did at 27. Mm. <laughs> so, um, and be prepared with a plan to prevent meltdowns and shutdowns, what to do during a meltdown or a mm -hmm. shutdown and what to do afterwards. This can be really helpful to talk over with a therapist, figure out a safe space to have a meltdown and shutdown or to decompress as a way to prevent the shutdown and figure out a route to the safe space that won't involve people traffic. That's a really, really big thing. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you're going to have more knowledge of this than your employer. So I think it's important to talk about the safe space. I don't think it's always the best idea to take the advice of a well-meaning employer because what they deem as a safe space might not actually be a safe space for you. Mm. And we're, I, I want to talk about that in a greater detail in a future episode. This this episode's getting pretty long, so I want right, right. to I want to keep moving on. Um, figure out your support team in case you have a meltdown or a shutdown. So, for example, if you're a teacher, figure out who's going to cover your class on short notice if you have a meltdown coming on. No different than if you get sick or if you have a family emergency while you're teaching. Mm -hmm. Um. As we've both talked about before, take a sick day if you think a meltdown is coming on or take a sick day as a preventative measure against meltdowns and shutdowns. So for me, I've learned that if if I have an after-school commitment like parent-teacher conferences, back-to-school night, uh, a, I'm a club sponsor, which I don't always recommend if you're autistic, but we'll get into more on that later when we talk about teaching life. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned is if if those events are happening, I either need to take the day off the day of the event or the day after. Right. If I try to work that whole day and do parent-teacher conferences, mm -hmm. I guarantee you I, I will have a meltdown the next day, even if I feel fine the whole day. Mm -hmm. That um, makes sense. And, and honestly, part of that too, it may mean needing an ADA accommodation to get extra sick leave. Mm. So, because I know I had so much stress, like burning all of my sick leave for my sensory needs when I didn't have any sick leave for when I was actually physically ill, like with a fever right. or a cold. So I think that's really important to get. Um, do Let's see. Uh, I already answered that one. If meltdowns and shutdowns are a frequent issue in the workplace, my advice would be Reevaluate if the job is a good fit for your physical and mental health. Invest in medication or therapy that can bring the body back into a regulated state and seek out accommodations in the workplace that can reduce sensory stimuli. Um, so I don't, what you do if you have a meltdown or shutdown at work, it's very dependent on your comfort zone with your employer knowing about your meltdowns and the conditions around the meltdowns or shutdowns ha happening at work. I've never had a meltdown at my my job other than the, the special ed job, which I guess I felt fine with because there were people who knew what a meltdown was, knew how to address it. Yeah, you had support. Not every... Yeah. Yeah. Well, not every, not every workplace is like that, if any. Definitely not. And so I guess it's like, you you can't really address it until it happens. So I, I don't want to give concrete like steps of if you have a meltdown right. in the workplace, like here's what you should do other than definitely take a sick day because mm -hmm. you're going to be very physically drained. So, you know, have a good preventative plan, have a good aftermath plan and have a safe space and a safe route to, you know, if you know for, for a fact you're going to have a, a meltdown in the job. And by the way, I'll also add bathrooms, uh, lounges, like workplace lounges, mm. teachers' lounges, none of those places are safe spaces. Mm. Um, your car is not a safe space because everybody can see into your car. Mm -hmm. It is really hard to determine what a safe space is. Mm. Um, also, you know, figure out what furniture is going to be there. So 
you know, because the last thing you want to do is destroy, <laughs> right, right, destroy right. office stuff in your work environment. So, yeah, I, I definitely like really think long and hard about what the safe space is and really, truly make sure it, it works for your needs. Thoughts. Good thoughts. All right. I think we are coming to All the right. end of this podcast where we talked about um, the self-interest behavior, what that looks like. We talked about um, the similarities and differences between autistic meltdowns and shutdowns. We talked a lot about what shame plays in self-harming meltdowns and shutdowns. And we uh, also talked about what these behaviors could look like and how they could be handled. And we gave you lots of examples of what these might look like. All right, next week's episode is a two-part episode on autism and sensory processing disorder. Yeah, if you thought this episode had a lot of information. <laughs> Just wait. The next two, yeah, I know. The next two episodes are going to be really jam-packed with information. So you can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our un upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Little side note, because we did talk about meltdowns and shutdowns specifically, you get a bang for your buck. You get two pieces of what? artwork and two different poetry what? poems. Amazing. How great. Amazing. Although I don't I don't <laughs> make two drawings for two part episodes, so you only get one piece of artwork for sensory processing there you disorder. Go. And you can check yeah, all I, of those out on our website. <laughs> Yeah, subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, all of that good stuff. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. If you want to go visit our website, it is understandingautism.info. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. <laughs>